0: Today we're going to be in Mark chapter 2, we made it out of chapter 1, Mark chapter 2. And we are going to be looking at the questions that Jesus asks. What are the questions that Jesus asks? I want to tell you about my 12-year-old inquisition. As you know, we moved from South Carolina to Kentucky when I was 11. A little less than a year later, I don't know why, my parents decided I could go down, back down to South Carolina and visit a friend and spend the week with him. And we had all kinds of crazy adventures. They lived out in the middle of nowhere. They had this huge garden. I've mentioned some of my adventures with this friend during that week to you already. I remember one day we were goofing off in the living room. And they had an old piano there. And I pulled out my my viola. If you don't know what a viola is, it's just like a violin, just a little bit lower. It's kind of like the alto of the string instruments. And I was playing all kinds of crazy things on my viola, fiddling around, And I remember that my friend's dad came into the living room and he just stood there and he looked at me. And at that time, I was 12, and I was probably not quite five feet yet, maybe just at five feet. And he was probably close to six feet. And I remember being a little scared because he had that look about him. And he began to ask me some questions. They were very straight-laced family. And he said, what was that you were just playing? And there are times when you get asked a question and you recognize the the importance of your answer. But on top of that, with the question, there is an implicit, you know you're going to have to admit that you did something that that person did not approve of. There I was, And I remember to this day the feeling inside of me. I was scared. And then a following question happened after that Why were you playing that in my house? Now, I saw this man years and years later as I was an adult, young married. I went to this friend's wedding and I said, Hey, do you remember that time? He's like, No. I do. It was very scary. And here is we talk about the questions that Jesus asked. This is the type of situation when Jesus asked the two questions that he asked in our text today, it was intimidating, it was scary, it was, what am I going to say now type of situation. As I began to prepare for today, I realized that I've been here before. As so I begin to study this passage, I have Bible software, and a lot of times I'll have notes in that Bible software. I was like, "Wow, this is an extensive notes. I must have studied this passage before." And usually, I know, like I've done a couple of series here in this church that I've done in other churches in the years past. Usually, I know, "Yeah, I've been there before." But this time, I'd forgotten that I had preached this passage before—Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And then it dawned on me that I preached this passage on a very special occasion. It was on March chapter or March chapter March seventeenth, twenty thirteen. March seventeenth, twenty thirteen. You know what that date was, Katrina? Yes, it was the first, it was the first sermon I preached in our church plant in California. Now, as I come to the text, I have a different emphasis than I did that day. You can come to passage of scripture at different times and have different things on your heart, different things on your mind, and so I am focusing on what Jesus and the questions he asked as a hinge for our time today and how we're going to apply it to our lives. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're considering two very important questions you asked. Spirit of God, I pray that you'd make those things, those questions, these truths, alive in our hearts. And you would teach us, show us our need, and also encourage us. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Preliminary considerations is the first thing we're going to look at today. Before we look at Jesus' questions, I I don't want to miss several things in this passage leading up to Jesus' questions. Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And when Jesus returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Remember, in Mark chapter 1, There's some special things that happened. We looked at that long Sabbath day of ministry that Jesus had. That was in Capernaum. And Jesus left from there and went around the region surrounding this town of Capernaum. And he preached and healed and cast out demons. Now he's coming back. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. And when they could not get near him, because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? We're just going to look at a few aspects here under our preliminary considerations. As Mark starts his book, in Mark chapter 1, it starts with Jesus in Galilee. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, Jesus had already had some time in ministry in another region, in the Judean region. But now Mark starts after Jesus had already been ministering in the Jerusalem area. And now he's up in the Galilean area, in the area surrounding Capernaum and in Capernaum proper. During this time, Jesus made his home base of operations, the town of Capernaum. It's where he called his first four disciples it is where he had that long Sabbath day of ministry. And it's also where Simon and Andrew's home was, where Peter's mother-in-law was that Jesus healed. And presumably this home was the home of Simon and Andrew. So it was reported that Jesus and his group had come back to Capernaum. And Just to help us visualize here, did Jesus and his group come in after dark? so as not to draw a crowd right away, or do they just walk in right in the middle of the day and walk to, to Simon and Andrew's house, and then the, the, the crowd grew right away? We don't know. I just want to help us visualize that as soon as he came into town, this is the guy that was healing people and casting out demons, things that people have never seen in their lives. The guy comes back to town immediately. As soon as they find out, there is a crowd to gather. Our Bibles use the word paralytic. That's not a term aside from reading my Bible that I hear people use today. Maybe in the medical field they use that. I don't know. But paralytic is somebody who is paralyzed. Somebody who is paralyzed. How many uh, people have known someone who is paralyzed? Just curious. Just a few of you. Even knowing someone that's paralyzed is not as common for us. I don't know if you've known somebody either who's paralyzed or somebody who is disabled in a significant way like this man was. It's very hard if you knew this person well, it's very hard for them to have a right attitude. Do they expect everyone to do everything for them? Do they do what they can on their own? When I was substitute teaching last semester for a class, I had to show a video in health of a man who had no arms. And it was a TED Talk. And the TED Talk shows, you know, everybody's clapping. Every TED Talk, it starts in the first 30 seconds, everybody's clapping, right? Okay, and so then this guy walks out on stage And he has no arms, but he has a suit coat on. He gets his suit coat off, and he gets it on and hangs it on the chair. And then he proceeds to sit down on a chair. He takes his foot, which he has no shoes on, and he has toe socks on, and he grabs a glass mug, and he puts it and he sets it on the stage. And then he proceeds to take a can of soda with his toes and open up the can of soda with his toes and then to pour the can of soda into the glass mug with his feet. Wow, that's right. That was impressive. He had their attention. But the rest of the TED Talk, he proceeds to tell about his childhood, about how awful and nasty he was to be around, and how he made everybody do everything for him, including his mom and his brothers, until one day mom said, that's enough. And she gathered the rest of the family out, and this, this guy didn't know it, his name was John. He didn't know it, but the rest of the family had a family meeting without him, and, they, and mom said, you will not help John, and if you do, you are in trouble. And so one morning... He, he uh, was getting out of bed, you know, and his younger brother was there in the room and he had his younger brother just totally dialed in and do whatever he wanted. Get, hey, get my pants, put my pants on, do this, do that. And his younger brother looked at him and you could tell there was a conflict on his face and John didn't know why. And his younger brother just finally just leaves the room. And then John starts to throw a fit. His mother walks in, has a little pep talk with him and tells him how it's going to be. Then she closes the door, walks out, and there he is laying on the floor, naked, no clothes on. And he had to learn how to take care of himself. And that was the beginning point. I want you to enter into the mind of somebody who is paralyzed like this man or who has such a significant disability that they have a huge attitude struggle with how to live their lives. In addition to that, looking at the other side of this matter, people who have a significant illness or a significant disability, very often even if they are being responsible, it, it's very—they burn through their systems of support. There are people who are disabled or have a sickness, and they'll have friends or family members that'll help them for a period of time, but they get burned out or sick of doing all this work for somebody, and eventually they walk away. And then somebody has to—then this person who's sick has to find somebody else to help them, and they go through people all the time because they can't find people who can stick with them through thick. And thin. So take this mindset as you consider what is happening here with this paralyzed man. There is a crowd, they know that Jesus is back and they have an appetite to see him do wonders. They don't necessarily believe in him, but they're excited he's here and they want to see him do more wonders. It's like watching a good TV show. Let me watch my reality TV show. Let's see this guy do some more amazing things. And these crowds are packed in around the house and Jesus is in there teaching and preaching to them. And so you can imagine, here's this paralyzed man going through all the struggles that he's gone through in his life, trying to survive and take care of himself and have people take care of himself. And he had four friends who at that moment were taking care of him. I don't know how long he had those four friends. Maybe they'd been lifelong friends and they'd always taken care of him. And they come up and they see this crowd and they know that the healer is here and they want to have their friend healed. I see this crowd and I envision as these four men try to get in, they can't get in. It's like if you've ever gone to Lowe's and gotten one of those carts and loaded up with lumber and drywall and all kinds of big things and then you go through this crowded aisle and you're trying to make a turn and people give you dirty looks because you accidentally bump them with with some lumber on your cart or you're trying to check out and there's this huge long checkout line and people trying to get along behind you to go to another aisle and you're in the way and they don't like you. And yet here are these four friends. People are probably grumbling at these four men as they carry this big, at least six foot long pallet, with, evidently with ropes, and they are trying to navigate, and they eventually make their way through the crowd enough to where there is a staircase on the side of the house, the way most houses were constructed then, and they went up to their roof. Now on the roof, the way, from my study, what I understand is most of these roofs were at least... Um, a foot thick, if not two feet thick. They started with wooden logs and then they might do some brushes, brushes or something, something thick with leafy and they lay that down and um, layer that up and then they probably would do a foot at least of dirt and they would pack that dirt down so that it would be nice and compact and hopefully water wouldn't soak through. And then they began to dig. I don't know if they had utensils, tools, whether they were using their hands. It was a messy process and it required persistence. And you can imagine that there was the beginning of a hole, finally, and of course they had to know they were up there long before they began even just a little hole. I'm sure dirt was falling down from the ceiling, um, and falling through the logs and through the bushes, and, and maybe the, every once in a while there was a quick, um, fast fall of dirt that comes down because they break free something, and, and there's this big mess in the floor. People have gotten out of the way, and eventually, there is about a six to eight foot wide. Yeah, if not bigger, maybe half the room's roof was gone because there was no way to do it neatly. So as we're visualizing this, next, Jesus saw their faith. This is one of the common themes we read of in the Gospels where Jesus takes note of somebody's faith. Jesus here in these four men and the paralyzed man he sees something more than a thrill seeker. He sees someone that's more than just self serving one to watch a good reality TV show. He sees something much deeper and richer than that. He sees faith that was genuine to the point it moved these men to action, even though they faced opposition, even though they faced the unknown.
1: Many people say they have faith,
0: but they have nothing to show for it. Now, the point is that we're not trying to show off to other people, say, hey, this is my faith, see what I'm doing. That is not the point at all. Those other people that we're trying to show our faith to won't be with us on judgment day. The question is, do you have an active, living faith in God, which shows up inside of you with how you act, with how you think, with how you react? Not that you're perfect, not that you're going to do everything right, but there is something living inside of you and it's bonded to our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lot of people who know how to live right, but they don't have something alive in them. There's a lot of religious people. In fact, in our story today, there's some religious people, religious scholars even, who did not have this faith. There are people who sit in the pews of good Bible-preaching churches their entire lives, and they know how to live, and they live right, and live with the expectations of their church, but they have a dead faith. First John chapter 2 talks about demon faith. Even the demons believe and tremble, but they do not have true faith. Folks can have a respect and awareness of God, but not truly believe in Him and have faith in Him. Next, sin and sickness. This is a difficult topic. Take a deep breath. Let it out slowly. Visualize with me again. These four men go to great lengths to make this hole in the roof, they brave people's irritation. They make a huge mess. They lowered this man down in the middle of the room. And I'm sure they made room for, even though the room had been packed, standing room only, they made room for this man. He's just been laid down. Everybody was shocked. Perhaps some people were angry. Was there a long pause? That's how I envisioned it. There was this awkward moment of, what is going to happen now? Here, this paralyzed man, I envision him looking at Jesus expectantly. I envision Jesus getting down, perhaps on his knees, and looking at this man back. The crowd has already seen and heard Jesus heal people and cast out demons. This is what they were expecting. They knew this man had the ability to do it. It was just commonplace at this point that this man could do it. He had done it. So there the moment is and they're expecting Jesus to heal this man. Jesus knows all this. He knows their expectations. He decides at this moment to introduce a new concept to those people that day.
1: Something that was entirely unexpected.
0: Instead of healing the man, he tells the man that his sins were forgiven. That was a shock. They'd already gone through the shock of having this happen to them and having a man be lowered from the roof. But then, instead of Jesus healing this man like he'd done so many times before, he says, your sin, your sins are forgiven.
1: There is a sensitivity here. Sin is ultimately responsible for disease and death. There is a direct correlation there.
0: When we think of people in our lives who are sick today and perhaps deeply sick and been sick for a long time and haven't been able to recover or they're disabled, for some it might be easy to critically think that there is a reason why they've had to go through this. Maybe there's a sin in their lives and God is judging them.
1: We have to be careful with that.
0: According to James 5, it is appropriate to consider that there is a direct connection between a sin in our lives and an illness. That's not totally inappropriate. However, there are many, many people who have had a sickness or a disability and it's not traced back to a particular sin in their lives. And here with this paralyzed man, In Mark, we have no reason to believe that he was paralyzed because of a particular sin in his life. There's also other portions of the New Testament who address this, the idea of sometimes we think because of people and their sin that they have this bad thing happen to them. You can look at Luke chapter 13 on your own time when Jesus confronts this directly. But there is a general connection Because of sin in the world, we live in a fallen world, disease and death does exist. And it's appropriate for us to consider this general connection. Here in this text, Jesus decided it was time to introduce the need for forgiveness of sin in connection with the problem of disease and death in general. They are connected. Questioning Jesus. The most religious and theologically trained people in this room, talking about the room where the paralyzed man lay in Mark, they were thinking the darkest thoughts about Jesus. Interesting contrast. The most trained in the scriptures in that room that day were struggling with the darkest thoughts about Jesus. Now it's really easy for us to condemn these men. But let's, let's try to think about this. Jesus had just said something they had never heard somebody say. They had never heard anybody say in their entire life, your sins are forgiven. In fact, they had never heard their fathers tell them about somebody in their father's lives who had said, your sins are forgiven. The tradition that had been passed down from generation to generation didn't have it anywhere saying, hey, someone said, your sins are forgiven. Have you been in circumstances in your life
1: that you didn't know
0: somebody else that had ever gone through them
1: and trying to sort it out? Jesus
0: had said something that blew their minds. Now, because they did not have faith, they thought dark thoughts. They thought of him as blaspheming instead of seeing him as the Savior. Preliminary considerations, and now we're going to move a little faster now. Why do you question in your heart? Jesus' first question was, why do you question in your heart? Verse 8, And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? I want to talk to you about face expressions and mannerisms. If you've been around someone for a while, they can make a certain face expression, and you know what they're likely thinking. It's especially the case with siblings. Siblings can just make a face, and the other gets all mad because they know what's going on. It can happen between parents and children. Parents can make a certain face, or children can make a certain face, and know what's going on. Now, maybe you haven't thought of it this way, but the same thing happens with church members. Certain church members can make a certain expression, and the other church member is pretty sure what's going on in their head. I've had I've heard complaints about that before by the way. Talking to strangers. There's a book written called Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell, Gladwell. And he talks about situations with judges, police officers, interrogators, CIA interrogators, talks about juries and talks about trying to read people's in her life, figure out what's going on. And judges and police officers and interrogators and juries and many others in their professional work have to be able to read people and make a decision. In this case, Malcolm Gladwell brings together some situations that are a high profile that the whole nation knows about and he goes through them and talks about how even with this ability to read people's faces and supposedly read what's going on, people get it disastrously wrong and hugely bad things happen because of it. Sometimes resulting in death. Other times resulting in false incriminations, false judgments. Other times resulting in people going away free. As we consider here, Jesus had none of this problem.
1: Now, we take that for granted
0: when we read a story like this with Jesus. When it says that Jesus knew that they were questioning in their hearts, we're like, yeah, we just, we just assume that, we get that when we move on. But then we miss one of the most pointed, pregnant, electrifying situations or aspects of this situation. That was an outright shock that was the moment when they were getting questioned. They knew they were guilty. How did he know? And it was, it was very shocking. And on top of that, these are the respected leaders of their community. And some of them had come from outside the community to come in to try to catch Jesus, do something wrong. And here, the people that, and the common people all knew these were the important people. Perhaps they were in the front of the crowd in a position of honor. And here, Jesus turns to them and questions them in such a way that they are implicitly guilty, and in fact, they were guilty and they knew it. you ever been in a moment to where you thought? Other people didn't know, and all of a sudden it became clear that they did know and they were asking you about it? That is a terrible moment. Jesus, beyond the faced expressions, beyond all the ways that people act, Jesus knows exactly what is going on in hearts. Jesus knows what's going on in your heart now. In fact, he knows your heart better than you do.
1: And so when Jesus asks a question it's not that he needs to know it is through that question that he is teaching you Yes this is this should, this should scare us
0: And this is why we should not run away from sovereignty and salvation. There has to be a miracle of God's sovereign grace to awake our souls for us to even be able to see Jesus and respond to Him. Because here these religious leaders were face to face with the God-man Jesus Christ who had just forgiven sins and had previously healed people and they did not see him as God. You would say, well, they were just losers.
1: So were you and I.
0: We have have the capability to see but not see. And so as you thank God for your salvation, thank God that he sovereignly awoke your soul so you could see Jesus. I understand there's a mystery there, but it's in the scriptures.
1: You had the capacity to be blinded in the face of God Almighty.
0: Again, the shock of being called out. And I've already touched on that, so I'm going to move on for the sake of time. Hiding from God. We know it's foolish to be able to hide from God. We can't do that. And yet we do we continue to do it and classically we think of the garden of Eden Adam and Eve knew who God was and yet as soon as he arrived in the garden after their sin as soon as they heard him they ran from him and tried to hide from him you are not able to hide from God he knows you in every respect preliminary considerations why do you question your heart? was Jesus' first question. His second question is, which is easier? Mark chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and Walk. Again, I want to draw your attention to our perspective. It's hard for us to think the way the religious leaders were thinking in this case. We think the answer is obvious.
1: Those religious leaders,
0: though, were thinking it's easy for him to say that he forgave their sins, but he can't prove that. And so Jesus, with his question, is addressing that head-on with a counter-question. And he says, well, which is easier for me, to forgive this man's sins or to, to heal him? And the answer for those who do not believe in Jesus for who he was would say, well, it's easier for you to heal him because we can all see that that happened. We can't see that you forgave his sin. So let's consider the connection. The connection between the forgiveness of sin and the healing of disease. Here Jesus draws a direct connection between forgiveness of sins and the healing of disease. The ability to ultimately do one means ultimately the other is done as well.
1: So let's make this practical.
0: Are you overcome because of some physical sickness or malady in your life or in the life of
1: somebody else? Are you overcome with all the things that are going
0: wrong in this world?
1: Is it weighing you down, especially after a
0: year like 2020? I think everybody's just gained a few pounds of weight upon their shoulders. We, we talk about gaining uh, pounds on our hips, but we've gained a few pounds of weight on our shoulders because we're weighed down with the burden of 2020 and all that happened.
1: Let me ask you a question Do you believe that Jesus can forgive your sins? Do you celebrate that? Do you rejoice in that? I hope so.
0: But now let's make the connection that Jesus just made in this passage. The one that you believe can forgive your sins and has done so is also the one that will restore all things. He will establish His kingdom on this earth. He does grant healing and uh refreshment from disease in this life sometimes, but he also does it ultimately for all of eternity. So if you can celebrate the fact that your sins are forgiven and that effect is for all of eternity, in the same way, draw the connection to the restoration that Jesus provides physically
1: into our world.
0: I will grant you there is an already not yet tension. We already are seated in the heavenlies as Christians. And we have the beautiful realities of absolute holiness in Jesus and forgiveness of sin. But yet we struggle with sin now. But we also need not to forget to make the connection of the absolute restoration to our physical world and our physical bodies and in the future our resurrection bodies. that is coming. Jesus made that very clear in this story. If I can't see my parents, they don't know what I'm doing. Happens in our house all the time. Some of you know that we have put a couple bedrooms in our basement and that's where our boys, uh, their bedrooms are now. Well, we're especially seeing that now after the boys go to bed. Because it has not clicked for our children, especially our younger boys, that although they are in the basement and although we cannot see them, we hear almost everything they're doing. So there are times when we're sitting on the couch or we're laying in our bed and we can hear what they're doing and they deserve punishment. But we're too tired to get up and so we wait as long as we can till we can't ignore it anymore and then... We enlighten them to the fact that we knew all along what they were doing and have to take care of the matter. Children, as they grow up, Kaylee and Jonathan are at the point now where they realize that they need to be a little wiser with how they conduct themselves because we know more than they realize. They're coming coming aware of that. We, as God's children are like children are when they don't understand what their parents really do know. Jesus here in this passage was integrating people's understanding. People tend not to think beyond the situation of where they're at or the room they're in. They don't realize that God, if we're going to just put it in the context of my illustration, God is in the other room and He knows and hears everything and He's able to take care of everything. Everything. And here Jesus is bringing their understanding together that yes, I am a Savior who heals diseases and casts out demons, but I'm also a Savior who forgives sins. He's piecing it all together to them and helping them understand the bigger picture. And He is over it all and He is able to do it all. Preliminary considerations. Why do you question your heart? Which is easier? And finally, that's just the way it is. We have these little phrases we use. I use them too. We say it is what it is. That's just the way life is. Yeah, that's the facts of life. Any others anybody want to share? Any, any I've forgotten? We tend to use phrases like this when we're expressing a negative aspect of life. It's just the reality we have to live with. It's just what it is. You say, whatever. Yeah, whatever. Whatever. (laughs) Pam says, put on your big girl pants and suck it up, buttercup. There's different things where we're acknowledging it's not good,
1: but we're just going to have to deal with it.
0: But we can apply this to our Lord Jesus Christ. But instead of the negative, let's do it in the positive way. It's just the way it is with our Lord Jesus Christ in a positive way, Mark chapter two, verse ten, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, "I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home." And He rose immediately and picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed. And glorify God saying, we never saw anything like this. My friends, it's just the way it is with Jesus. Expect healing and restoration. Expect that He will heal your soul. He will heal your body. You have good things to expect of Jesus in life with Jesus. Next, I I hope, next time that you use one of those phrases, I'm sure I will too, that the Holy Spirit will smite your heart as you're saying, well, that's just the way life is. You say, well, that's just the way life is with Jesus. He's good and He's taking care of me. He forgives sins and He heals our bodies
1: and He restores this world.
0: I want to tell you about my dark chocolate thins. My kids... Every time I have these, I've only found them at Sam's. They're thins, uh, like uh, potato chip thin, except they're flat, not curved like potato chips. Potato chip thin, dark chocolate with some sort of, I think, a sea salt in there. And it's, I love dark chocolate. And the, just the combination of the salt and the dark chocolate, mm, good stuff. But I can only get them from Sam's. And I can't order on Sam's website and have them shipped. I've got to go to Sam's in person to get these things. Well, it seems like every time I open up these things, a child is hovering around, sees me open them, and even though they know I'm a selfish father, they come to me and say, Dad, can I have one? 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 And I'm not telling you, but sometimes I'm, I won't tell how often, but sometimes I'm very selfish. I say, no, you can't have any. These are mine. You and I can look at that life, look at life that way, We can look to our Savior who has good things and gives good things, who is never selfish, always loving, always kind, and go to him. Claim good things with our Savior. Ask him for good things. Be rejoicing in the fact that he gives good things. And he's not selfish like me. One point of application today. Integrate the
1: wonders of what you know of Jesus to your life today.
0: I've heard a lot of recounting about the evils of 2020 and it's legitimate to acknowledge the challenges. You don't repress them and push them away. You acknowledge how bad they were. Do that, but more importantly, also do the recounting of the wonders we have in Jesus in your life today. And that's just the way it is with Jesus. It's good, it's wonderful. He will restore all things. He will return. We are forgiven in him. We have hope for our lives today in him. Jesus, completely customized to you, is arranging your life for your good. Even the hard things. And he's doing it with tenderness and kindness and wisdom. Things aren't happening by accident in your life. He is cleansing you and sanctifying you and helping you live a life of Christian virtue and joy and abundance. He's pruning you. That's just the way life is with Jesus. It's just that good. But then when He's done with all that, He's going to glorify you and give
1: you a resurrection body.
0: Consider this in matters of discouragement when you sin. Consider this in matters of discouragement when you face disease yourself or with a friend or a family member. Consider this as you look at our broken world and the nations of the world. Jesus is restoring all those things. Just as he has power to forgive your sin, so he has power to restore broken bodies and broken nations in a broken world. Spend a few minutes and respond to the
1: Lord.